I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Most people wouldn't feel at great ease gargling in front of a microphone. Neither did I, actually, but I did it. That's me, gargling. A willing participant in an experiment. I agreed to do this experiment because I think it's actually quite important to understand a central, fundamental aspect of living a full life. I'm talking about the experience of flavor. Okay, that was uh, th- about 30 seconds. Now I'm supposed about to do this how many times? Four times. Four times. Really? Uh. Sorry, Marcus. <laughs> If your body is working well, you experience flavor every day. But we mostly experience flavor without reflecting on what it is. How is it created? Is it on the tongue, in the nose, in the air, in your head? How is it generated? Who creates it? And maybe equally important is the question of what gets lost in translation whenever we try to talk about it. For instance... Tell me what a fish tastes like without saying it's fish-flavored. You know, fishy. So back to gargling. Actually, I wasn't alone. Fellow producer Tenery Taylor and I, after altering our taste receptors with a clever mouth rinse, sat down to bacon and pancakes. We were actually hoping because of this special gargle, that the essential flavors of bacon and pancakes would be compromised, maybe even vanish altogether. They say absence makes the heart grow fonder. So just how fond is your palate for things that are sweet or salty or tart after those qualities are somehow blocked by rinsing your mouth with chlorhexidine? or by sucking on an extract of an herb called Gymnema sylvestra. Our guide in all this, or maybe our tormentor, if you will, assistant producer Paige Crumperman-Darrington. But back to our experiment during which we were robbed of what would otherwise have been a delicious experience with bacon. All I can say is I'm smelling one of my favorite foods, bacon, and I... Are you going to block that taste for me? Well, tragically, I don't think you're going to be able to taste it the way you want to. (laughs) Yeah, it's totally a Grinch who stole Christmas kind of experience here. (laughs) This Uh is, yes, I'm taking one for the team. (laughs) Absolutely. So to start off, I think that we should jump into the chlorhexidine, which will block our salts. So we have the mouthwash right here. And what we're going to do... Our disappointment with unsalty bacon did indeed begin with that preliminary business of gargling to paralyze our receptors, but you've already heard the gargling scene. So here's the part you still need to hear, our honest reactions. Generally, bacon is a delightful experience for me. I I always eat bacon with my fingers. I'm very sorry. Uh, Don't be sorry. This is the saddest thing I've ever done. It's got the bacon texture, obviously. Yeah, which it feels more like waxy cardboard without the the salt. Well, they say that some of the flavor, you know, will hit you as you're swallowing because it's back there that the back mm. passage where they can, you know, shoot up the nose and hit that yeah. epithelium thing. I mean, you get that. You still get the like the umami, like the there's still a little bit of meatiness, but it's not salty. Without that zing, like uh, the texture mm-hmm. doesn't. Talk to me as much as it would mm-hmm. otherwise. Is that fair to say? Well, I, I mean, I know myself well enough to know that textures mean a lot to me. And actually swallowing, the act of swallowing mm-hmm. is an important thing in my gustatory experience. I like to swallow food, having chewed it first. I don't want to eat anymore. I'm not wasting no, any more either. calories I, on a non-bacon-bacon <laughs> bacon experience. Yeah. Just deprived of a single component of taste, saltiness, tenery, quickly disinvested. I kept putting down the calories. That's my custom with bacon. But in my own defense, we were only missing the saltiness, you know. And don't forget, we were only playing a game. This is, however, not a game for some people, people who have lost access to flavor because of COVID. I want you to meet Mike. I am a video production engineer for BYU Broadcasting. Mike lost his sense of smell when he came down with COVID, and he thought it was just going to be a temporary condition. 
But after six months, nine months, and now a year, I'm uh, less optimistic about ever getting my sense of smell back. How does this really affect you on a day-to-day basis? If right now I were to pick up a juicy burger or a piece of bacon, I would not be able to smell it at all. There would be some some taste. I still have the my sense of some sweets and some salts, but it's very muted. Desaturated is the way I would describe it in a video engineering context. Its taste has lost its color, especially the the subtle tastes of um, complex foods like Indian dishes. I could feel the the tickle of the spiciness, but I don't taste the subtle ingredients of a delicious meal anymore. Well, with those sensations gone, have you changed your habits of the way you eat? I have completely changed uh, the way I eat. It's taken some training. You see, I've because I don't develop an appetite from a sense of smell like you normally would, the direct effect of that is I am also not terribly satisfied after eating. So I can eat and eat and eat, and I never feel satisfaction. I only feel full, which is a very discouraging feeling when you know, you're in your late 30s and you're trying to keep weight off and it's COVID times and it's easy to gain weight these days. So I've had to retrain the way I enjoy meals. It doesn't cap itself off with a satisfaction like well, it used well, to. Mike, I'm just wondering though, because the stories I hear are different. It's the opposite thing happening. And here's a prime example for you, actually. I want you to hear a teenager named Jaron. He gets to the point where he just can't make himself pack away food anymore. And his mother's watching this all play out. We started to notice a change in his personality, and then I started really watching what he was eating and realizing that he was taking a few bites and throwing things away. And then I asked him how school lunch was, and he would just say, I didn't eat it. It's enjoyable to eat food. It's fun and exciting because you get to taste all the different flavors, but when I didn't taste flavors or when I didn't like something, it wasn't fun to eat food. It was more of a burden. That was Jaron. He had a complete shutdown, the very antithesis of your story. It just seems odd to me, Mike, that one person experiences the absence of flavor as a deterrent to eating. And you're saying that the presence of flavor actually helps you feel satisfied because you haven't just filled your tank physically, but because you've had a chance to enjoy flavor. Uh, You could make the case. I don't go into a movie theater craving popcorn because I can't smell it anymore. So in that way, that that is a technique I can use to, you know, keep some, some pounds off. But Day-to-day, you take it for granted, but your smell is part of the eating experience. You eat and eat, but eventually you feel, oh, man, that was a great meal, but I'm done. I'm kind of full. But without a sense of smell, the entire thing gets rewired, reprogrammed. Do you tell yourself, stop, just stop eating? That is exactly how I would phrase it as I have to use my executive functions in order to, to stop because there's a bottomless pit that I'm never going to hit, hit the, the bottom of. So, yeah, I have to conscientiously think about my meals and try to, try to enjoy the senses I do still have and enjoy the textures of the food in addition to the salts and the sweets. And sometimes vinegar. Salt and vinegar chips are a lifesaver. Mike has found a way to relish flavor, even when his perceptions of it are just not as robust or multi-layered as they used to be. But with COVID, apart from its ability to block certain perceptions completely, it can also wreak havoc in ways that are downright strange. Maybe you know somebody who hasn't lost all access to flavor, but whose perceptions of flavor have been kind of scrambled by the virus. Jesse Thurston contracted a mild case of COVID. She was working as a substitute teacher. And yes, as is often the case, she was completely shut off from flavor, temporarily. But what came later, after good flavors returned to her? This is about three months down the road. Well, it was kind of crazy. She started to experience what is called parosmia, which is a long-haul COVID symptom. With parosmia, smells and tastes become grossly distorted, and sometimes even repulsive. Things tasted off. I would have a strawberry and it would taste rotten. I would bite into an apple and it would taste like it was fermenting. And I had others around me taste these same fruits um, and vegetables, sweet vegetables especially, like uh, bell peppers, sweet bell peppers, cucumbers, things like that that have a lot of sugar in them. And then meat started to taste bad. 
I'd have to spit it out because the taste was just so horrid to me. My normal sense of smell is extremely excellent. I could smell a dirty diaper from three rooms away. I could smell if something's burning from outside the house. I could, if toast is burning or popcorn is burning, I could, I had a very acute sense of smell before this happened, uh, which was why it was so disconcerting because I, I, I'm used to relying on my sense of smell and taste for safety in my life. And at this point, I'd hug my husband and his deodorant would just be so strong in my nose, I, I couldn't get close to him. Um, and, and it would smell like cleaning solution, like pine sol or something like that. It was kind of strange to me because I thought I had recovered. I was thinking, am I down with COVID again? What is going on? And come to find out there's a lot of people that this has happened to. They do a, about a three-month recovery. And then for some reason, those nerves in their nose that connect to their brain aren't sending the right signals anymore. And so the signals you're getting don't connect with your memory of that smell or taste. And I understand it's not very consistent that some days... Uh, maybe a strawberry would smell one way, but then it would flip on you and smell a different way. So yes, it was fairly consistent, four or five months. And then after that, I started healing, I want to call it. One morning I'd wake up and be able to taste a strawberry the way a strawberry is supposed to taste, but the next morning I'd wake up and it would be rotten again. And so I have to try different foods on different days to see if a banana tastes good today or if the raisin bran tastes like raisin bran. Or uh, It's kind of hit or miss at this point, but I'm trending towards uh, recovering those memories of how things are supposed to taste and being able to connect them with what's in my mouth. What's been the most bizarre perceived flavor, uh, the most surprising, given the fact that maybe an onion really doesn't look like a strawberry at all? (laughs) Well, during April and May, everything to me tasted like raw chopped onions. So I'd sit down to a bowl of raisin bran in the morning and take a big spoonful and it would be crunchy, but it would taste of raw chopped onions with a little milk on it. And everything for a while tasted of raw chopped onions, no matter if it was a sandwich or, you know, a bowl of cereal or anything that I was eating. And I don't dislike raw onions, but when you're having them for every meal, it does get old pretty quickly. Jesse and I spoke with each other just a little bit before Thanksgiving, which you might style the most important feast on the American calendar. You have a sister who's an amazing cook, you say? Yes. She is the most unbelievable cook. She's sous-viding our turkey for Thanksgiving and makes the ama- these amazing lavender mashed potatoes and just all kinds of uh, amazing dishes. So it's changed for me now. Instead of going to appreciate smells and tastes, I go to appreciate company and the visual presentation. Using other senses and other connections uh, makes me able to enjoy a holiday, even if I can't taste the lavender and the mashed potatoes. Well, what you just did was to describe a workaround. Yes, exactly. I've had to find ways to connect with family, even though my plate might be very small and theirs might be uh, heaping with food. Not to be too cliched about this, but this is a glass half full, half empty kind of scenario. And it sounds to me like you're approaching it fairly optimistically. Well, I'm glad I've gotten to this point. Over the first four or five months, it was very sad. I I mean, like everyone, I love food. I I really enjoy sitting down to a wonderful home-cooked meal, some of my favorite dishes. um, and, And I did miss that. But after time, I realized I can't just stop eating. You know, I need to keep finding things that taste good to me. And Thanksgiving doesn't always have to be about the food. It can also be about the connection. Later in this episode, we're going to circle back to what Jesse's been saying about social connection. We're going to talk about the emotions, the dance, the magic of gathering together for a feast, and the role that fine flavors can play when they get invited to the table. We're even going to meet the host of the TV show, Food is Love. And before all that, we want to understand more about how flavor works, the science of it. Flavor appears to be a grand cooperative effort between your taste buds, your nose, and even your gut. As we've been considering flavor this hour, we have met some people who, heroically, I think, have found ways to value eating even when flavor is compromised or tastes are erased or everything goes topsy-turvy. In our little taste-blocking adventure, we were able to bracket in the taste of umami while bracketing out the saltiness. The composite experience of bacon, it wasn't all lost, just mostly lost. 
I think we all know, at least subconsciously, that when we mix ingredients in a recipe, we're adding and then balancing out all the constituent elements. And this is in anticipation of a final result that is going to be far more than just the sum of its parts. Encountering flavor, it turns out, is far more than perceiving a single isolatable taste experience. And scientists are very much onto this. In order to try to understand the vast complexity of this thing beyond mere taste that we call flavor, I had a chance to visit with Bob Holmes, who undertook a fairly comprehensive overview of the topic of flavor in his book titled, quite simply, Flavor. It does come with a subtitle, though, The Science of Our Most Neglected Sense. As you'll hear, Bob Holmes moved rather deftly from the basic science of taste into the sophisticated, nuanced business of flavor in all its varied complexity. When I was in, say, junior high school and had a health book and they showed us some picture that was a map of the tongue, and nobody Mm -hmm. back then, nobody said a word to us about the nose back then. It was all about, here's where the stuff gets tasted on your tongue. Boy, we've, we've moved a far way from there. We have. Yeah, back when I was in junior high school, there was the taste map of the tongue with, what was it, sweet at the tip and bitter at the back and salty at the sides. A couple decades ago, the received wisdom was, oh, that's completely bogus. And the reality is somewhere in between. You can taste all of the basic tastes on all parts of your tongue. And you can demonstrate that by dipping a Q-tip in salt water and rubbing it along your tongue. You'll taste salt everywhere. But there are taste buds, particular taste buds are more concentrated in particular regions than others. It doesn't really matter. You do taste the basic taste, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami, all over the tongue. But what a lot of people don't realize is that that's only a tiny part of the flavor equation. And most of it really is the sense of smell. And that's really easy to tell with what I call the jelly bean test. And hold your nose and pop one in your mouth. Try and figure out what flavor it is while you're holding your nose. All you'll get is sweetness and you know maybe a little sour. And as soon as you let go of your nose and bring smell into the picture, then you realize, oh, that's strawberry. Oh, that's lemon. Oh, that's lime. It's because most of what goes into a flavor is smell. So ironically, when we say, oh, I've got a cold, I can't taste anything. We're exactly wrong. Because when you have a cold and your nose is stuffed, you can't smell anything. All you have left is taste, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami. I talk glibly about the five basic tastes, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami. But there are probably some more. Depending on who you talk to, there might be one or two more. There might be several more. Uh, Some people think there might be a basic taste for fat. Mostly it's decomposing fat, oddly. Uh, There might be a basic taste for water, of all things, for calcium and, you know, a few other things. So there is still some stuff to work out for taste. But yes, the flavor picture is much more complex. And as scientists were first going about the business of including umami in that list of uh, tastes, a bit of a tug-of-war, it seems to me. There was some controversy, wasn't there, about whether or not this was really a thing. Yeah, that got resolved pretty quickly once people got into the molecular biology because it it kind of clinches the argument to be able to say, well, look here, I have identified the receptor for umami. And if there's a receptor for it and it's on the, in the taste buds in the tongue, then yes, it's a taste. I want to ask you about the idea that has been prevalent for many, many years that humans do not have a particularly well-developed, maybe even a poorly developed sense of smell compared to other animals. You kind of say, think again. Certainly it's better than we think. It's really hard to compare uh, humans' olfactory abilities with those of a dog, say, because you can't ask the dog questions. But you can measure what's called an olfactory threshold, which is what's the weakest concentration of an odorant that you can detect. And you can just ask a person, can you smell this? But for a dog, you have to do much more elaborate. You have to train the dog to associate a smell with a treat. You put the smell under one of two identical boxes and see which one the dog comes to and and so forth. And when the dog no longer is able to pick the treat, then you say, okay, you're below the olfactory threshold. 
And so it's, it's time consuming. But when people have done that, and they've only done it for a dozen or so odorants, people turn out to be almost as good as dogs. One of the difficulties is that our noses are way up in the air and all the smells are way down there at ground level. And so if you get down on your hands and knees and stick your nose on the ground, you can actually track things better than you think. There was this wonderful experiment, uh, an olfactory researcher who blindfolded undergraduate students and had them follow a track left by a chocolate-soaked string across a lawn. And they can do it perfectly. That would be a sight to behold. (laughs) It would be a sight to behold. There's this great picture of the blindfolded person. They actually also wear thick gloves and knee pads, so there's no question of feeling the string. And there they go across the lawn at Berkeley. So we are better than we think. We're definitely not as good as dogs. So it's not just the location of the nose, but we're, and where we're especially good actually is, is at the flavor part of olfaction. Cause really the sense of smell is two different senses. There's the stuff that comes in at the front of the nose. I call it orthonasal olfaction. That's sniffing, sniffing the world. And then you can also have scent molecules rise up the back of your throat to the olfactory region. And that's called retronasal olfaction. And that's the part that's actually contributing to flavor. You know, if you think about a human head versus a dog head, our heads sit upright and food in our mouth, it's very easy for the scent molecules from the food to rise right straight up to the olfactory epithelium. So we're probably way better at retronasal olfaction, at the part that contributes to flavor. You also point out, and this is a very important point, that there's such wide variation from human to human to human, in terms of what our capacities are, and even uh, how we're equipped to scent different types of, of smells, it seems daunting to me to be even uh, able to make any comparison from one person to the next. Yeah, it's remarkable. There are something like 400 different odor receptors in the human genome, function, working odor receptors. And in any, any two of us... You you and me, for example, we probably differ in about 50 of them. They're broken in me and not in you, or they're broken in you and not in me. So every one of us comes to the world with a, a unique set of odor receptors. And that probably means that we each live in our own unique odor universes, and therefore flavor universes. So it is remarkable that we can even talk about it intelligibly to one another. Because you know, we are quite different. And that probably contributes to things like why I love cilantro and my friend hates it. There is a specific odor receptor that contributes to that. There is a particular odor receptor that makes people sensitive to the bitters in broccoli. And so I bet the people that don't like broccoli have an active version of that receptor. And the people that do like broccoli some of them at least, probably have a less functional version of that. Everybody's different. I would imagine this contributes to a lot of social confusion, consternation between people when we think we're having the same experience. Yeah, but on the other hand, I mean, we we recognize it by saying, you know, to each his own. Everyone has his own taste. To some level, we recognize this in each other, that you're not going to like the same stuff that I do. Probably most people put that down to experience, but and, it, and that makes a huge difference, of course. But there is also a, a component that's genetic. Okay, now, Bob, you've made it really quite clear to me that this variability between different eaters who eat the same thing but have different experiences, that comes in large measure because people are just equipped differently physiologically. But now I'm also wondering about an impression I've gotten right or wrong, that some of the farthest outliers are going to be the people we call super tasters. So I'm wondering if you could help me understand a little bit more about super tasting. Uh, To be a super taster is seen as kind of a strike against you, that things could be overwhelming and and the the stimuli could be just too overpowering. You think about it, when you hear the word, oh, super taster, that must be a wonderful thing. But it's actually a bit of a curse sometimes because the people who are super tasters have a much more intense experience of sour, bitter, salty, and often they don't like it. So 
many super tasters turn out to be the, the picky people, the picky eaters. There is a subset of them, though, that are what one researcher calls food adventurous people. And the food adventurous super tasters are the ones who have the intense experience, but they're, they, they seek it out. They want it. Not always a wonderful thing to have intense encounters with flavor. We've considered flavor deprivation, and I'm thinking now my life would be a bitter experience indeed if I could not perceive, well, even bitterness. So if I had to be on one extreme or the other, I'm absolutely certain I would want to be a super taster. Usually they say people who are most sensitive to bitter are your super tasters. That's the voice of Gene Alborn, a food scientist at Brigham Young University. Gene helped us out here in the studio by conducting a taste test, and I got to be one of the guinea pigs, in part to see if I was a super-tasting kind of guinea pig. When you put this piece of paper on your tongue, did you taste bitter or not? Yes, I did. Absolutely. Will this sensation go away anytime soon? Uh, you can rinse, drink some of your sour Thank uh, you very much. <laughs> sour sample, and it will dissipate. Uh, yeah, if you're extremely sensitive to bitter as well, once you taste something bitter, it will linger for a while. And you may ask yourself, why am I so sensitive to bitter? Think of the history. Why would we be sensitive to bitter? I have no idea, Gene. Uh, you're going to have to help me out on this one. <laughs> bitter is actually nature's way to help protect us. So many plants have natural alkaloids that are toxin. And most of these toxins are bitter. So we as a human, as we quote-unquote evolve, um, rely on that sense of bitterness because it's used to help us detect when something could be potentially toxic, an alkaloid or a tannin. Now, in most foods, these are very low levels, and so it's not going to cause potential harm. However, if you do consume a large amount of some of these bitter-containing components in plants, it can make you very sick. So I've got rhubarb growing in my backyard, and I can eat the stalks, but they say there's oxalic acid. Oxalic in acid, absolutely, absolutely, which by itself... Okay, it's not the greatest for you. Your body's able to metabolize and excrete it. If you eat it in large amounts and if you have some different physiological conditions, it can accumulate in your body, cause kidney stones, and cause other adverse effects in your body. So what you're talking about here is very interesting. It, it seems to indicate that possibly from some evolutionary process then, we come equipped today with kind of a defense mechanism Absolutely. in our mouths and our noses. Absolutely. That bitter detection, the recognition is is key to helping us identify. Or maybe I misspoke and that help comes only from our mouths and not necessarily from the nose? Uh, it also comes from the gut. We actually have taste receptors in our gut. No. <laughs> in our digestive tract. So we just think taste in our tongue, but it's actually through our whole digestive tract up to the small intestines. Your that, mind's blown. <laughs> that blows my mind. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Some of, some of the philosophy behind that is that actually helps us reach satiety in having those receptors there because we eat something very sweet. We want more and more and more. If we didn't have those sweet receptors in our stomach, we would continue to eat and eat and eat. Sometimes we overeat regardless. But again, those receptors are there for a purpose, and then we have them in different parts of our body to hopefully help us keep from overeating. Satiety being, I feel full. Absolutely correct. A quick recap here. Because our mouths and nasal cavities exchange air, and all of this happens in the head that is held upright, our sense of smell cooperates with our sense of taste more efficiently than it does for many other animals. And even our gut can identify certain attributes of the food we ingest. That's probably pretty important for people like Mike and Jesse who need some way to know that they've hit satiety when they fill up. And that brings me to another kind of fullness, the fullness that comes when life overflows with a seemingly endless stream of beautifully complex flavor opportunities. The palette of options for our individual flavor palettes can be more colorful than any rainbow. In just a moment, we're going to discuss the highly acclaimed film Babette's Feast. It's the story of a group of villagers who live with an impoverished spectrum of flavor for many long years, and suddenly they find themselves seated before a feast. Intense, rich, sophisticated, exotic flavors. Whether or not they have a super taster in their number, we'll never know, but this calls for adventurous eating regardless. And to further consider questions about the place of flavor in our lives, we're going to talk with a Danish chef 
whose current brainchild is a show called Food is Love. Lasse Sorensen, he approaches his culinary work with the enthusiasm of an evangelist. I tell everybody, you know, go cook for somebody. Don't tell them that you love them. Show them because food is love. Turtle soup, pancakes with caviar, quail in a puff pastry, if I remember correctly, it's called kai en sarcophage, sponge cakes, coffee and wine. This is a feast, and it comes at the conclusion of what I have to say is one of cinema's greatest scenes ever, that's my humble opinion, Babette's Feast, the name of the movie. I'm Marcus Smith, and our aim in this Constant Wonder episode is to explore how much flavor means to us. We've touched a little on the science of taste and smell because these lie behind our perception of flavor and because these sciencey things are fascinating. But by now it should be clear that we've intentionally framed the experience of flavor as highly contingent. What do I mean? Well, to weigh the real value of flavor, you have to imagine those instances when flavor takes a holiday. Hate to be blunt here, but there's truth in that old adage, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Now with the movie Babette's Feast, what happens when flavors return? We invited a couple of experts in Northern European and Scandinavian studies and film to tell you a story of how one sumptuous meal changed a community, at least on the silver screen. Julie Allen and Chip Oscarson are professors of comparative arts and letters at Brigham Young University. Uh, Julie, can you tell us a little bit more about this place, this people, and, and the setting for this movie? Sure. So the author of the story is Kan Blixen, who's a Danish author. She sets the story on the west coast of Jutland, and she sets it in the late 19th century, kind of a, a place out of time. It's this empty, heather-filled wasteland, really, with a very, very devout community of pious Lutherans. They don't dance, they don't party, they don't go out and see the world, they don't wear colors, and the things they eat are very basic. They eat uh, dried cod, they eat rye bread that's been boiled with beer, very, very basic flavors, and so they haven't really had any exposure to the colors and sounds and tastes of, of anything outside that little world. So the villagers in this little corner of the world, a place called Denmark, they are deeply committed to the mortification of the flesh. You know, they give up some pleasures in this life in the interest of something believed to be much better in the next life. I have to say, by the way, this is not just a Christian idea of sacrificing things for something better. And, and, and then in the movie, everything gets turned on its head when Babette, this foreigner, she gets dropped by fate in the middle of this God-forsaken but God-fearing place. <laughs> and Chip Oscarson, uh, she works a kind of miracle that transforms them. The transformation that happens in the movie is that you have a character who comes from the outside, Babette, uh, who is French. She's there because she's an exile from the revolutions in Paris. We don't know this at first, but she's a, a world-renowned chef, actually. Um, but she comes in the service of these two sisters in this very pious home, and she wants to make this sumptuous meal. And this is horrifying, of course, for this community who have been had it ingrained in them that this is this is hedonism, right? That this is you know the physical is to be denied to keep your 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 sight set on the on the spiritual. But what's remarkable is the way that Karen Blixen in in the short story and Gabriel Axel, the, the director through the film, brings together these two things: that the the physical and the spiritual are in fact not separated; they're intimately in, intertwined with each other. And maybe this is what makes the movie so pertinent for us today, that we humans are always grappling with these questions of our sensory experience and what to do with all of that. Well, the fact is that we experience life within communities, right? And so we take our cues from each other. I mean, green jello, funeral potatoes, those are not things that anyone spontaneously decides to eat. That is something that your community influences you to want and to value. And so this community has made a, a culture of denying themselves any sensory pleasures. But they also are experiencing conflict as a result of that because they, they have nothing to, to draw on in their relationships. And so there's backbiting and there's fighting and they're losing the spirit of their founder. And they are really in a crisis situation when they get this opportunity to be confronted with something that they're terrified by that they think is a threat. And it turns out to be the, the only thing that can save them. 
whatever the founder of this sect intended to do in trying to unite his followers into a single body of joyful believers by depriving them of certain shared delights and pleasures, well, it seems to have backfired. No communal feasts, no special treats to share with each other, no gifts of pleasurable, exquisite food to cement relationships, none of this to serve as symbols of affection or appreciation, tokens of even forgiveness or apology. I've often felt like really good friends just don't bring food over and say, here, I've brought you some calories. That's not what they do. They, they say, I've made something wonderful for you and I hope it's tasty. Do I have to persuade you? Shared food in a caring community can have a powerful effect on us. In this story, it takes a stranger from outside to restore what had gone missing from that founder's vision of communal unity. Here's Julie Allen again. When Babette arrives, the community has already lost the vision of this um, this utopian society, and she's a papiste, a, a Catholic, and she comes with all this baggage that they are terrified of, but they don't notice in the first 20 years that she's there that she's slowly and, and quietly and subtly enriching their community. Even the ordinary dishes they've been eating for all these years, she invests them with a new flavor. But it's when it comes to the feast, and they're confronted with this entirely new palate that they start to think that this is a threat. I mean, you think about how important food particularly is for forming traditions and communities and the whole idea of communion, right? And and in this film, it's set up that way. It is a Last Supper sort of situation where there are 12 around the table and it is this feast where it's about drawing this community together and you do that over food. And that's that's not insignificant, I think. This whole idea of taking something from outside of yourself and incorporating it to be part of your body and doing that together to, to symbolize this the way that we're that we're coming together around certain ideas, certain values, and, and ultimately around kind of love and fellowship. One of the beautiful things about this movie is the specificity, the, the, the detail, the particulars that uh, the camera will take us to see what they're eating. I mean, kai en sarcophage. What is that? Quail in a crypt? Quail in a sarcophagus? <laughs> uh, you, you, you hear what it's called and you, and you kind of recoil, but you see this thing and it's glistening straight from the oven. And you say, well, I could maybe eat that. You see those little tiny quail heads in their puff pastry. You see the caviar glistening on the Blini Demidov. And the character who really brings this out, of course, is the Swedish general, um, Lorenz Löwenjelm, who is the only person in the room not sworn to silence, that they've all sworn not to speak about this. And so it's his reactions that helps us as viewers to appreciate what we're getting, that he sees the Blini Demidov and he exclaims, no, this isn't Blini Demidov. And he savors the caviar, and you can see on his face the, the joy of this. And when they bring the champagne that this teetotaling community abstains from, he's the one who recognizes the quality of this, of this alcohol. This isn't just any alcohol. One of the members of the community says, oh, this is lemonade. It's delightful. And you see her licking her lips and her cheeks getting pink. But it's... Um, it's, it's really the general who gets most of the, the airtime of showing us when he tastes the tortoise soup and he just stops and he savors it on his tongue and he says, oh, but this is real tortoise soup. Just how do these very humble, inexperienced people describe lavish food like this? Once they've made the decision, they're actually going to try to comment on it. Um, because they have no experience with food, they don't know what a turtle soup is. They don't know what they're eating. They can't help but be changed by it. I mean, even without being able to articulate it, they, their hearts are softened and their cheeks get flushed and they, they start to reach out to each other. So if this feast plays an important role in bringing people back together who had been estranged or had hard feelings amongst themselves, uh, give me an example, if you would, of, of a couple of characters where, where this actually plays out. Well, sure, it happens again and again. I mean, there's the, the one of the sisters, Martine, has had this lover who, who courted her but left, and he has had a successful life, and he comes back. He's the general. And so that reconciliation happens. And there's a couple that's had an affair that sort of rekindles that that memory a little bit in this moment. But what really happens is they are taken out of time, right? All the things that have bound them, all the grudges that dissolves and, and time sort of becomes nebulous for them. And they start to think of themselves as young again and think of themselves not as entrenched in these, these relationships and these ruts, 
but able to, to really be dynamic in their relationships. And there's one really sweet scene between two men in, in the congregation, um, and one of them knocks the other in the ribs and says, you cheated me on that timber, you old scoundrel. And instead of denying it, as he has for years, the other brother this time now is able to laugh and say, yeah, yeah, I did. And well, and then the other one retorts, well, actually, you don't know what I did to you on this other occasion, too. So, <laughs> But still, for all of that, there's a bit of a confession and a reconciliation. There is. And this is, it's this, um, their religion does not include a confessional. I and mean, it's, it's very Lutheran in that. And there has been no space for them to sin. There was only to abstain from sin. And so if you had sinned, you concealed it and let it fester, like this relationship between these men. But with the lubrication of food and song and champagne— those things are become more fluid again, and they're able to renegotiate these relationships in, in much healthier ways. Even the general and Martin, he's able to kiss her hand and accept the life he's chosen, where he's kind of you know thought about her longingly all these years for what the life he gave up. They even eventually dance and sing. They don't dance. That, that'd be a bridge it, too far. The closest thing these people are going to do to dancing is what they do. They, they gather in a circle They outside. sway. They sway together. They even eventually go outside around the well and they form a circle and they sing together and it's quasi-religious out there. Well, th- this is one of the genius things about the film. Even though the last, what, third of this film is all dedicated towards this meal. And what's what's remarkable is that even though it spends so much time with the preparation and showing every you know kind of step, for me it never drags. You could you could imagine how it could, right? But a third of a film that's dedicated just to the preparation and eating of a meal, never for a second because it's it's so sumptuous, right? Um, there's so much you've been denied so much visual pleasure up to this point that it stands in for that experience on your taste buds to where you can almost taste it. But it's not just the food. I mean, it's not just that that experience of the of the eating it is that euphoric emotional reaction to this food and i've had that experience i got to eat at cox on the faroe islands which is a michelin starred restaurant in the middle of nowhere and you feel the room getting warmer <laughs> you feel the just the the emotions bubbling up from this experience of of really good food and the movie does convey that and when they can't contain that they burst out of the house to to bring this out to the community and they dance around the well which is essentially how Scandinavians celebrate Christmas is they dance around the tree. And so they hold hands and they sing and they praise the birth of Christ. And here they're, they're praising the birth of their founder, but it's really the rebirth of their relationship because now all these repressed emotions and anxieties and resentments have all been washed away in this flood of euphoria. So the big question is, did the food accomplish this? Did the flavors of the food enact this miracle? I think absolutely, right? It's, I mean, it is the experience of the senses that causes these barriers that have been uh, building up for years, you know, to be broken down. And it's at this very moment that Julie's describing that it starts to snow. And it's, it's like the instantiation of the hymn that they've been singing throughout the movie about Jerusalem, my heavenly home. Yeah. And this, this bringing of the earthly and the heavenly Jerusalem together, that that's, that's the big point of the, of the story and of the film, is the marriage of these two things. They're not separate. You don't come to know the spiritual except through the physical. Both of these are intimately tied up with each other and that you can't actually have the one without the other. When was the last time, Chip, you had an opportunity to have a quality dining experience that, that took you out of this world and you had to talk about it with the people you were dining with. I'm married to a French woman, so it happens most <laughs> evenings. The, this, is, this is one of the real casualties of COVID, right? It, we've been denied these opportunities um, not to eat. We've all been eating, presumably, um, but to eat together. You know, to sit down together in, you know, in places, you know, restaurants and things like this that, you know, for, for many of us that this is, this is one of the real casualties. And I think that it, it impacts our ability to, to relate uh, to each other. But those moments are, are sublime. There's something transcendent uh, as we not only eat by ourselves, but eating these wonderful things together where we, where we articulate it and we, and we share it. That's even more special than, than just having a really good meal. The producers of Babette's Feast tapped a chef from Denmark, Lasse Sorensen, to create the fine fare for that movie, 
And everything you've just heard about flavor coming to life in community and fostering a sense of belonging and togetherness, Lassa really understands this. It's part of his own life philosophy. Made him a perfect match, actually, for his contribution to that film. Well, Sorensen is still opening up new culinary worlds for people. He's on a kind of mission, like Babette, even though it's 35 years since he was on that film crew. His father was a pastry chef to the Danish royal family, so Lassa knows the ins and outs of that kind of work, but he launched out in a new direction of his own, a different culinary path. And of all places for him to land, DeSoto, Illinois. He bought a hundred-year-old roadhouse called Tom's Place. At least he didn't wash up on shore as a refugee from French revolutionaries. I'm about two hours southeast of St. Louis uh, with not much uh, going on down here, but I wanted to create a culinary oasis in a culinary desert, I guess. Specifically, he wanted to convert the establishment into a fine dining venue. Everybody told me this will never work. You know, a lot of gangsters came through here. It was fried frog legs, fried chicken, you know, steaks, you know, very simple foods that was a reflection of the time, if you will. So when I took it over, I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try something completely new with the restaurant because there's no sense for me trying to make barbecue or fried chicken or anything down here because we got masters of that in this area. I needed to do something that put me on the map. So I was exactly in Babette's footsteps. The hesitancy in the beginning was something else. We, we used to stand and look outside the window and we tried to guess how many people we would have today. And, and we would like put a couple of dollars on it. And my wife's son, Jamie, he always chose zero. And in the beginning, he won a lot of dollars that way. But we found a way and we got our bearings and footing in the community. And then all of a sudden it was like, you know what, that Danish guy up there, you should try it out. It's different, but it's really good. It is something we haven't seen in Southern Illinois. And now today, of course, there's a lot of other people doing what I'm doing. And uh, I don't see it as competition, really. I see it as a wonderful thing that happened in Southern Illinois. Tom's Place is still called Tom's Place, but it's really Lassa's Place now, a five-star restaurant. Just check out the menu online. It's remarkable. But here's a secret. That menu does not contain some of his own home-style comfort foods from Denmark. Not at all. Want to know what Lassa often craves but can't quite win people over to here in his new homeland? The chef for the movie did not win friends overnight with certain of his Danish favorites, the way Babette did with her French cuisine. You know, I've had some uh, times where, you know, I invited a bunch of people to my restaurant and I cooked all this Danish food. My mom and dad were here at the time and, and everybody looked at it like, why are you putting duck fat on rye bread and then you put herring on top of that? What you described there reminds me, uh, when I was in Austria and Germany, of what we called schmalzbrot. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, and mm-hmm. and, and I, ke- I couldn't bring that home to my family and uh, encourage them to like it, but I liked it. No. Have you been an ambassador yeah. for the, those kinds of Danish foods? Right now on my menu here, we have uh, a dish, and it's my take on a very common man's dish in Denmark. It's called... Which, you know, nobody would know unless you're Danish, but that's the national dish in Denmark. So I kind of took the idea of the same dish and I'm trying to find a way to bridge the gap between how Americans eat and how we eat. So instead of just having these pieces of pork belly that we have in Denmark, I put a big Berkshire pork chop on there and then I have the pork belly crisp pieces on top of that with these, this bechamel sauce with a lot of fresh parsley in it and new potatoes that are boiled to perfection. And that has really resonated with a lot of people. Flavors that resonate. Discovering and sharing those kinds of flavors may very well be the primary aims of most any good chef. Years before Lassa Sorensen became committed to that restaurant in the American Midwest, he was far from Europe, far from the United States, in Africa, actually. And here's what happened. I think I was kind of a, the black sheep of the family, if you will, because I have always had this wanderlust. 
when I was really young, I went to Africa for six weeks and went on a safari. I was a chef at the time and, and I sat down and, you know, all the servants they had on the safari, I was looking at them, how they were making all these meals every single day for us. And I was wondering, why is nobody cooking for them? I saw this big uh, pan they had, you know, where they had fire up underneath. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I can see they have the ingredients. I'm going to make crepes for them. So I asked them, I said, is it okay? that I do this. And uh, so the, the people that ran the operation said, sure. So I put a, a white bucket on my head. I couldn't find the chef hat. And I told them that I wanted to show them my appreciation for them working so hard for us to have a wonderful time. And I made crepes to set out there in the jungle in Kenya. And I saw their faces and the joy. And, you know, that has stuck with me. I suspect Lassa has told this story about the safari many times before because when he says, that has stuck with me, he's not kidding. Beyond his restaurant, Tom's Place in DeSoto, he is still following in the footsteps of the mythical Babette in a very big way with a project called Food is Love. You can find this series of videos on YouTube, and it's been distributed by PBS. In the series, you get to follow along as Lassa sets out to meet restaurateurs in the St. Louis area who are people like him, ambassadors of culture. They foster community by sharing uncommon experiences of flavor. I've been a chef all my life. I'm 52 years old, and it's the first time I've had that, 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 that. It's absolutely delicious. What's exciting that uh, I'm sharing your first Korean meal, mm -hmm. you know, in my mom's home. Food is love. Food is love. Yeah. And love your food. Well, I'm coming back for dinner tomorrow. You told him that, right? <laughs> it's been a long slog for all of us getting through month after month of this pandemic. Even if you haven't suffered like Mike or Jaron or Jesse, you know, all of us have missed breaking bread together. It's actually a pretty good time to weigh the meaning of flavor in our lives, to wonder what feasting accomplishes, to reflect on questions that go beyond just the sheer matter of how do we survive without food, flavor raises very important questions, fundamental questions about our happiness and well-being. And the better we understand it, the better chances are of coming together, and the better the chances of even the most adamant holdout coming to terms with cilantro. We'd like to thank our guests today, Mike Sullivan, Jaron and Jennifer Young, and Jesse Thurston, also Bob Holmes, author of Flavor, the Science of Our Most Neglected Sense, Gene Alborn, a food scientist at Brigham Young University, Julie Allen and Chip Oscarson, professors of comparative arts and letters at BYU, and Lassa Sorensen, chef at Tom's Place and host of the PBS show Food is Love. This episode was produced by Tenery Taylor, Paige Crumperman-Darrington, Jenea Tanner, and Mamie Teeples. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.